Hey, thank you for listening. Did you know I have a YouTube channel? I have over 130 different videos. I have videos with more scary stories told in the rain, scary stories by a crackling fire, and I also have videos that are less relaxing and more on the scary side. Go check it out, and please don't forget to subscribe. In the YouTube search bar, just type being scared. All right. Catch you later. This story occurred back in October, and I'm still shook by this. I live just outside of Red Deer, Alberta, Canada. It takes about 10 minutes to drive from where I live to the city of Red Deer. So my best friend, who I'll call Katie, and her boyfriend, who I'll call Josh, invited me for Thanksgiving dinner. In Canada, we celebrate Thanksgiving in October, so I drove about 20 minutes from my house to hers and spent the night. We had our dinner and some wine and some laughs. I spent the night since I was drinking wine that night. I slept in the guest bed while they slept in the basement with their two dogs, Emmett and Arlo. It was around 4 a.m. I woke up randomly, which was normal, I always wake up randomly in the middle of the night, except this specific time, I woke up and instantly felt a sense of dread. My back was facing the door, which I left a crack open that night, so it wasn't closed all the way. I just hid there for a minute, not being able to shake off that uneasy vibe that I had, and something inside of me was telling me not to roll over and look. I wanted to know why I was feeling this gut instinct, but something inside me said that it was a bad idea. So, I just stayed in the same position for a couple more minutes to see if the feeling would subside. But it didn't. Then, I heard the dogs, Emmett and Arlo, weeping. Feeling concerned, I decided with all my courage to roll over and look at the door. What I saw in the doorway to my room I nearly shit myself. I looked, and there was my best friend, Katie, standing at my doorway, just staring at me, watching me. I just about had a heart attack. She was just standing there, staring at me, with her eyes wide open. She had a straight face at first when I saw her. I then asked, Katie, what are you doing? Well... That straight, wide-eyed facial expression turned into a blood-curdling grin. Her eyes remained open, extremely wide. When I saw that, I said, Katie, what is it? Why aren't you in bed? She then backed away from my door, still having that terrifying grin on her face, and disappeared into the darkness. A few seconds after that, I got up to investigate what the hell that was. I came out of the room I was staying in, and I looked. Katie wasn't upstairs. I even looked out the glass sliding door in her kitchen to see if she might have let her dogs out. Nope. No Katie. I crept downstairs very quietly, and peeked into her room. I looked, and there was Katie and Josh, sound asleep in their bed. There was no way Katie had left my room and went all the way back downstairs that quickly, without me hearing her go downstairs. 
Did I just encounter my best friend's doppelganger? I couldn't just leave and drive all the way back home without telling them that I left. I've never seen my bubbly and happy Katie look so cold and evil. I swear that was not her. I don't want to tell her or Josh, fearing that I would freak them out or think that I'm crazy. I'm still absolutely shocked over this. I know this wasn't a dream. I'm starting to wonder if some unwanted evil entity took the shape of Katie's body and tried to lure me into something insidious. I did ask Katie one thing that following morning. Does she sleepwalk? She told me never once in her life. To prelude, I was a 5'3", 23-year-old girl at the time attending university for an art degree. Right off the bat, you can assume I was a little bit nerdy, and yes, I am. This event happened October 2017, during my junior year of college. I remember it was a windy night in town making skateboarding to my next class a hassle. I figured that walking would be my best option to get to class on time, because otherwise, I would be late due to a low drag on my board. So I get off my board and start my short trek to class. It was nice fall weather outside for the time of night, and it was sort of populated, so it was safe to say that I felt at ease about walking alone. Class was about another 10 minute walk. For this reason, I decided to pop my headphones in and enjoy the next 10 minutes of my journey. All was well, and I felt unusually happy because let's face it, late night classes aren't always the best. They actually sucked a lot now that I think about it. Though it was alright because perfect conditions called for happy times, and I wasn't going to let class ruin the vibe. Soon that would all change. I continued walking to class, turning a corner, and strolled the last five minutes down the pavement. At that moment is when I noticed that there wasn't anyone walking about anymore. You know as humans, we have a natural instinct to feel a threat or feel if we are in danger. That indeed was what I felt walking that short distance to class. It was then that the fight or flight kicked in like a light switch, even though I didn't know for sure if I was in any real danger. Was I in danger or was someone else in danger? I didn't know. And because I didn't know, it made trusting my instincts a whole lot worse. The building my class resided in was in eye distance, and I knew for sure that if I was actually being pursued, I had to make it to that door. So, cautiously, I continued walking, hoping to make it to class unharmed. I eagerly wanted to know for sure if I was being followed or watched but three factors urged me not to investigate. The first was my headphones. I knew taking my headphones out would open up some more human sense to attempt figuring out if my senses were true. However, taking out my headphones risked having the person know that I'm onto them, and that is the last thing that I needed. Factor number two was my sense of sight. I could not see anything besides what was illuminated in front of me by light posts. I know you must be thinking, 
Why didn't you just turn around and sneak a peek? Well, you see, it's not that simple, as turning around would again reveal that I'm aware of the pursuer. So that definitely was not the smartest option. Lastly, my gut told me to just get to the door, and I will be scot-free. Although trusting my gut made the situation that more of a reality, I realized my only way of survival at this point was to make it to that dumb door. Feet away from the door, I got the urge to make a dash to ensure that I would be safe. At this point, it was now or never, and I chose now. I made a mad dash to the silver door to the building, grabbing the handle and ripping the door open, slamming it behind me and locking it from the inside. I felt safe and secure now that I'm inside, and I now feel safe enough to see if my suspicions were correct, only to be greeted with a pavement way full of nothingness. Full of confusion and adrenaline, I stood there defeated and a tad disappointed. I felt so sure that my senses were true, but I guess I put too much faith on a whim. Nonetheless, I ended up making it to class barely on time to catch the first lecture. It was difficult to concentrate, especially after a false alarm my body decided to hit me with. It was my last class of the day anyway, so I eventually brushed off my jitters and tried my best to pay attention for the rest of the lecture. An hour later, the lecture began to die down and class was nearly over. I began packing up my belongings excited to get home and sleep until a guy tapped me on the shoulder asking if I was okay. Confused, I said yes and asked why. What he explained to me next made my heart skip a beat. The guy in my class told me that he was also trying to make it to class on time around the same 10 minutes that I had to walk to get to class. He explained that he saw me as well and ended up rounding the same corner that I did. Immediately, I knew he was possibly following behind me which made me feel the way I did earlier, so I asked him why he followed so close. He grew a confused look on his face, which also confused me. He said he wasn't close to me at all. In fact, he made it clear to me that he was about a half a block behind me. This sent chills down my neck and propelled me to ask the number one question in my head at the time. Did he see anyone else behind me? His face turned pale when he registered what was unfolding. He said yes, and continued telling me the person following me was practically within arm's reach of me, and he assumed the person was a friend or something. Like a car crash, my mind hit me with a mix of emotions of confusion and fear. Everything made sense besides one small detail. When I looked out the door to see if anyone was there, I saw no one at all. I asked him if he saw me running, and confidently he said yes. I then asked if he saw the other person run as well, and again, with utter confidence, he said yes. Now I'm just downright scared out of my mind and don't really know what to think. Regardless, I pulled it together to ask the only question left for me to ask the guy in my class. Where in the world did the guy go when I looked and didn't see him out the door? He hesitantly told me, before I got to the door, the person broke off and went in a completely different direction, for which I'm assuming to not get caught.
More emotions and thoughts began to run through my mind. The feeling of being watched and followed were true, causing me to go into a visible panic. The guy in my class saw my distress and asked me why I didn't call the police. In my mind, I felt that to be a really dumb question. Calling the police wouldn't have done much, or possibly nothing at all, considering the person following me was within arm's reach. If anything, any sudden movements during the time could have cost me my life. Like clockwork, the class was let out to go home for the night. I was still visibly shaking from the recent information, and by no means did I want to go back out there in the dark, waiting for my pursuer to potentially catch up to me. The guy saw that I was still shaken up, so he politely asked if I wanted to be escorted to my dorm, to which I immediately agreed. I admit, it was stupid to let some random guy escort me to my dorm, but if you were just as afraid as me that night, having an extra someone to talk to wasn't such a bad idea. The rest of the night was smooth and not stressful at all. Surprisingly, we talked the whole way, and I didn't get any suspicions of being followed. We made it to my dorm hall, and I thanked him for being so nice to show me to my dorm. From there, that was the end of it. Later on, that random guy in class became my husband of two years now. I'm thankful to have had him there to soothe me through that frightening experience. Though to this day, the experience still sends chills down my spine, just from thinking of it. Makes me wonder what would have happened if I didn't trust my instincts that night. Or what would have happened if the person following me actually decided to interact with me? What were their intentions? Were they hostile intentions? I will never know or find out for the rest of my life. And frankly, I want to keep it that way. So... This story is from a friend of mine, but I have his permission to share it. He has told it on multiple occasions, and I swear, it's one of the scariest stories I've ever heard in my life. It doesn't involve Bigfoot or ghosts or anything like that. It's a story of how reality can be way, way scarier than anything like that. For the longest time, he's worked as a trail ranger at a large national park. A trail ranger is basically a ranger, only with considerably less judicial power. He can't arrest you or anything, but if you're in an illegal bind or hunting stand, he had the power to call in actual cops before ripping down whatever unlicensed hide you've constructed. So this one time, he's accompanying an actual forest ranger and taking down unauthorized hunting cameras and feeders. The actual ranger was an older guy who started to feel unwell towards the early afternoon, so he headed back on his own. It was like an hour's ride on an ATV, and left my buddy to finish up. Just as he was almost done, my friend starts to hear voices coming through the trees. It's important to keep in mind that he was way, way off the beaten path at this point, so it's not like he expected there to be anyone around but it occurs to him that these might be the people putting up the illegal cameras and blinds in the first place. He calls out to them, demanding to know who they are, but the voices just go quiet, 
and there's not a sound to be heard other than the occasional bird song. It's also starting to get dark by that time, so he starts heading back towards the trail where his ATV is parked. When he finds it and tries to start it up, it won't budge. That's when he noticed that the ATV battery has been torn out and taken by someone. Not some prank by the older ranger. Someone has actually disabled his means of escape. This obviously made him extremely nervous, especially since he's already heard voices in the area. He radios back into the ranger station that he's based at, basically telling them that he needed someone to come pick him up. They reply, they'll have someone out there within an hour, but when he asks about the older ranger, they tell him he hasn't arrived back yet. Again, this made him really nervous, since the ranger should have easily arrived back by that point. He settled down and started a small fire as the sun went down, but before long, he heard those same voices again. They are not happy. At all. He said it sounded like they were in the middle of a vicious argument, with one guy angry and yelling while the other sounded frightened and apologetic. He listens for a minute or two before calling out into the darkness, asking if anyone needed help. The way he tells it, they must have heard him. He could hear them, so they must have heard him in return. But they didn't react, like they were too absorbed with their disagreement to answer him. My friend then radios back into the ranger station for a progress report. They replied, saying that they were having a little trouble finding the trail he was on, but that they wouldn't be much longer. The older ranger, however, still hadn't arrived back at the station. About five or ten more minutes go by when my trail ranger friend begins to hear the same angry voices start up again. He decides to walk towards them, hoping maybe he can prevent a potential assault and maybe even get his hands on some food and water. He walked in their direction, but the voices seemed to be getting further away. No matter how much he tried to close in on them, Finally, after like 20 minutes of walking, he gave up and hiked back to his fire. It's about then that he got a radio call that they said the older ranger guy had been found, passed out, covered in vomit, having fallen off his ATV. He was being taken to the hospital and that that had taken priority over finding my friend. I mean, that's understandable, but my friend is getting kind of frustrated at this point. He's out in the woods, on his own, and it's getting really cold. Then the voices came back. He's pretty bored at this point, and he's convinced that these guys don't want any company. So he said he just sat there in the darkness, listening to them argue over something. He's picking up little phrases here and there, when the voices begin to shout things like, Well, it wasn't yours to take. Or, It's mine, damn it. Stuff like that. He says he assumed it was two hunters, maybe arguing over a kill. But there was a good chance that they were blaming each other for the missing equipment that my friend and the ranger had confiscated. He heard the argument get louder as one of the hunters shouted something, unintelligible. Then, out of nowhere, bang, a single gunshot echoes through the woods. He immediately doused his fire ran a couple hundred meters into the trees, 
and then hid in a thicket. He said he waited there for as long as he could stand it, hearing absolutely nothing but his own heavy breathing, until he saw the lights of an ATV. He told the guy picking him up everything that had happened, and they called it into the ranger station. They had people looking for three hours out there, but not a single thing was found by any of the rangers. They came back the next day with state police and tracker dogs. It only took about an hour before a shallow grave was found. In it was a long dead corpse of a man who had clearly been shot in the forehead. The thing was, it was a skeleton that had been there for years and years, so either the argument he heard just ended with a bang and both parties went home last night, or he heard the murder of someone from years ago. I don't really believe the last part, and to be honest, neither does he, but it certainly makes for a creepy ending to the story. But the really scary part for me is that there's every chance that the gunshot he heard that night was yet another murder, and that the body will be found in a similar way, by some unwary ranger, like some horrible time loop that'll never end. Just out of college and despite having a degree, it was almost impossible for me to get a job. Day after day, week after week, I sent out my resume to every game developer and computer company in the country, and a few in Europe and Asia. Six months into this, my money was running very low. This was when I was forced to face the facts. I needed a job immediately, and it didn't matter where and for how much. Just in time, I found a job listing for a video game store at the mall. You know the one I mean, and the terrible stories you hear about them are almost all true. Because of my background in games, I was given an interview immediately and hired soon after. My first shift was the following morning. Other than a few hiccups along the way, it kept my head above water until I got with Dell two years later. The meat of the facts begin just before my second year was about to start. Because of the high turnover, I was made an assistant manager by month nine. Most of my shifts were evening, so I was tasked with keeping the younger employers in line. A job I never really took seriously since I was only a few years older than they were. I didn't give a crap how they acted, as long as they did their job. Around this time... A girl was hired that could have been my undoing. The second I saw her, I knew she would be a problem. However, it wasn't just her that was the source of trouble. Her super jealous boyfriend became a thorn in the side of every guy that worked with her, and sometimes just spoke to her. A shift of hers didn't go by without him showing up to check on her. Some nights, he would do no more than sit on the bench outside the store and watch her work. But any time she would get too close to a guy for his liking, he would approach them and physically intimidate the guy she was talking to. She never said a thing when this happened. I actually think she kind of liked it, but it would be what would push her away from him in the end. She had worked at the store for a couple of weeks, before someone showed her the hallways that ran along the back of every place. 
She took advantage of the fact that he wasn't aware of them, and this turned out to be a big mistake. If any person listening to this doesn't know what I'm talking about, pay attention. You're about to learn something. I'm not sure how common this is, but some indoor malls, those built in the old way, where each store inhabited an area they leased from the mall owner, there are a network of paths, or halls, that run behind each business. They're used mainly by the employees. The system allows them to enter and leave their jobs without being seen by the customers. Although, I'm pretty sure their intended purpose was to give janitorial staff an uncluttered pathway to maintain the spaces. That being said, in all my time at that job, I only saw a member of the cleaning staff a handful of times. Most of those times, they were sneaking a cigarette rather than working. Luckily, we could still smoke inside the building back then. No one said anything to the office if they caught you. Probably because they were doing the same thing on their breaks. If we are all on the same page now, I'll get to the real story. Like I said, his jealousy, no matter how it turned her on, was at the same time pushing her away. On her breaks, she'd often sneak out the back and disappear for a while. Where she went, I had no idea, or really cared. The boyfriend took forever to catch on, but when he did, he was super pissed. She continued this routine for a few months, and just one day, she never came back to the store. I didn't attach any importance to this. It was during the holidays and work was a nightmare. It wasn't uncommon for employees to go on a break after an especially hectic rush and not return. The turnover was simply that bad. Things got a bit more interesting about four or five days later. The police showed up and had some questions about her disappearance. I was like, disappearance? What's going on? Then they informed me that she had been reported missing the day after she bailed on work by her parents. She had never made it home, and they thought that we might know something. The crazy thing was that when they visited her boyfriend's place to see if she was there, in addition to him not being there, after some digging, they learned that nobody had seen either of them for about a week. I was quick to make it clear that I didn't know crap. I had just assumed that she got sick of the place and bailed. I guess they were happy with that. I never heard from them again. Time passed, and the situation around her almost faded completely from my mind, until something really big in February happened, and brought it back into crystal clarity. Some workmen were renovating one of the store spaces for an incoming client, and once they had completed emptying the space of what the previous renters had left behind, they began the undertaking of finding the source of a terrible smell. Initially, it had been inferred that the smell was emitting from some old food products left behind in the space, but even after clearing, the stink remained. The next theory was that an animal like a rat had died in the wall. It had happened before. So... Before they went to the extreme of busting holes in the wall to find the source of the smell, they went next door to the adjoining space that was also empty and had been for some time. They spent close to an hour sifting through the tons of old displays 
and leftover building materials. It turned out that the mall had been using this space for years as storage, and the place was a mess. The two guys tasked with doing this were about to say forget it, when one of them stumbled upon the source of the stink. And it definitely wasn't a rat. Someone had taken a large piece of plywood and put it over a tiny little closet, thus making it invisible. The guy had caught on that the smell grew worse as he got closer to this board. So, he pushed it aside, the heavy display rack holding the board against the wall, and as soon as he pulled back the board, he found what was causing it, the semi-mummified body of what looked like a female was laying on the floor facing the wall. It appeared that the arid and dry Arizona heat had preserved the corpse and suppressed decomposition. This had to have been why it wasn't stinking up the entire mall and managed to remain hidden for so long. Naturally, the mall was alive with talk of who the body could possibly belong to. Numbers of people had just stopped coming to work one day or skipped out during their lunch. Hell, we had gone through at least 15 people in the last year ourselves. When the answer came, no one could have guessed who it was. Early one morning, I was awakened by my manager with the news that Becky Morrison was the person they found dead in the empty store. My only answer was, Who? He reminded me that she was the girl with the crazy jealous boyfriend that had disappeared just before Christmas. I hung up and went back to sleep. When I returned for my shift that night, it was the only thing anyone could talk about. The next question asked was, who had killed her? The overall favorite was the crazy boyfriend. Everyone knew by now that he had disappeared just after her, and considering his body wasn't found alongside hers, it was a fair assumption. He was most definitely nuts. It made sense. The story took on a whole new angle just a couple of weeks after she was identified. An article was published in the paper discussing a possible new motive behind the murder. The police had recently received information that Becky had been messing around with a fellow mall employee during her breaks. They were meeting in the unoccupied store her body had been discovered in and having sex. After following some leads, they were able to identify the employee. He was a 22-year-old guy working in the Hallmark store, but no name was given. He told the officers that he and Becky were supposed to hook up the day she disappeared, but he got held up, and by the time he had reached the empty space, she was gone. He figured she couldn't wait and returned to work. It was only a few days later, when the cops showed up at the mall to ask questions that he heard she was missing. His mind went straight to murder, and he was afraid he would be blamed for it, so he said nothing. Then, when the news reached him that her boyfriend was also missing, it was too late. He figured if the boyfriend was hiding out, waiting for his chance to kill the guy she had been banging, it was best for him to say nothing, just on the off chance he didn't know for sure who the guy was. It all boiled down to him being afraid, and with what I knew, I could understand. What nobody knew and still probably doesn't, 
is that her and I had a thing for a short while too. It wasn't long, but once is all it takes. I was the person who told her about the back hallways after all. We slipped out there a few times to mess around. Fortunately, we never got busted. When she moved on to the next guy, I wasn't hurt. I knew she had a boyfriend anyway. Now you know why I had to act as if I didn't care about her. We figured it was the safest thing for the both of us. Turns out we were right. I was overjoyed that no one knew about us. If dude was crazy enough to strangle her for cheating, which seemed to be the reason, he would no doubt come after the dude she was banging. I felt sorry for the Hallmark guy. It wouldn't take much mental math to figure out who he was, if he didn't already know. And since they still haven't found him, to this day, the fear of her boyfriend popping up out of nowhere and putting some holes in him must have been real strong. I know I was looking over my shoulder for several years after. The police have this theory that he had committed suicide not long after the murder. There hadn't been any activity on his bank account or cards for years, but I still wasn't taking any chances. Nine years later, a week doesn't go by that I don't think about her. An outsider may have seen her as an easy girl, but I still don't think of her that way. It struck me that she was just looking for a guy that would treat her well and commit to her for the long term without being psychotic about it. She was a genuinely good person and certainly didn't deserve the end that she got. But then again, I can't think of very many that do. This all happened the night before I moved onto the campus dorms of my local university. I was living with my mom and dad at the time, and I was excited for the freedom that awaited me. So naturally, being an insomniac, I couldn't sleep, and I decided to go on one of my nightly walks. I lived about three quarters of a mile from a gas station, so I figured I'd go get a soda. It was around three in the morning when I snuck out of my parents' house. Everything seemed relatively calm, and I enjoyed my walk. This all ended when I walked past a house with a running car in the driveway. This set off some red flags, because I live in a town with a lot of drug-related crimes, and the whole situation looked really seedy. One of the men looked at me, and it made me really uncomfortable. So I picked up my pace and made my way to the gas station. The gas station was closed which made me really upset because Google said they were open 24 hours. So I posted a mini rant on Snapchat, and I made my way back home. The gas station scenario made me forget about the shady car situation, and I just walked right past it. Then a chill went down my spine as I saw the glow of headlights coming from behind me. My heart dropped, and I had a powerful sensation of dread. The car followed me very slowly for 20 seconds. Then, my flight instincts kicked in, and I ran. This hasn't been the first time I've been followed by a car, and my paranoia went into overdrive. I ran so fast I'm convinced that I could have won medals for it. I ran through a church parking lot and hid behind a building. 
It was a large Catholic complex that doubled as an elementary school. So a large church and several mobile home buildings lined the property. I hid behind one of the mobile homes and heard a man get out of the car and call out. He eventually got in the car and rounded the street corner so he could see the other side of the complex. Since I would be visible to him, I snuck around so I was in between two mobile buildings. I was in a position where I could see the glow of his headlights on the street. For ten minutes I waited for him to leave. He repeated the process of calling out and looking for me. I looked out again and saw that the headlights were gone, so I figured it was safe to leave and make my way back home. As I was walking down the road, the glow of the headlights came back on, and within a minute, the car was next to me. I kept thinking to myself, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead. The man rolled down his window and asked if I needed a ride. I told him no since I don't live that far away. He kept asking if I needed a ride and I kept declining. Eventually he said good night, but proceeded to follow me slowly. So I just walked up to a random house and pretended it was my house. Thankfully, he resumed a normal driving pace and was gone fairly quickly. I left the yard and made my way home. It's been a year now since that happened, and I still get jumpy when a car passes me while I'm walking. I don't go on nightly walks as much as I used to, and when I do, I'm constantly on edge. I don't want to know what that man had in store for me if I had taken his offer for a ride home. This is a story of something that my dad witnessed unfold when he was a kid in northern Texas. He was born and grew up on his family's farm until he was drafted to fight in Vietnam. In that neck of the woods, most of your neighbor's farms may be over five miles away. But the neighborly spirit of helpfulness meant all one had to do was ask and assistance would be given without a second thought. There was an exception to that rule, however. The two landowners located to the north of his family's place had been at war since, some said, the Civil War. One farmer had been a loyal Democrat and slave owner, while the other was supposedly the head of a recently arrived Yankee family who was a supporter of Abraham Lincoln and the newly formed Republican Party. The Yankees were also wealthy and had purchased a large plot of land that the other farmer had his eyes on for some time. Like so many other families at that time, and in that part of Texas, what started off as a disagreement over politics, the coming war would only serve to worsen. Upon the end of that bloody conflict, and with the return of both men from fighting in it, those in surrounding area hoped the differences between them would be squashed. But this was not to be. The bitterness that had always been there, seething just below the surface, would break free anew after a dispute over a property line sprang up. Josiah Campbell, the patriarch of the pro-Union Campbell clan, had purchased a 500-acre piece of land just before the war had broken out. This large parcel adjoined to his neighbor to the east, Samuel Johnson's property. 
But it wasn't until 1883 when Campbell began to put in fencing to keep his neighbor's cattle from encroaching onto his land did the already hostile relationship between the two landowners reach a new and dangerous boiling point. Multiple face-to-face confrontations would ultimately lead to a court battle in which Campbell would come out the victor. If Campbell believed the court's judgment would be the end of the argument between the two families, he would be proven terribly wrong. Many more disagreements, some of them over insignificant things, would arise in the following generations. One of the more notable involved Josiah, now a grandfather, in which a stray bullet would come very close to striking him. Although most in the area assumed Samuel or one of his sons fired the bullet, it could never be proven. Incidents similar to this would only serve to keep the bad blood between the families just hot enough. My family's part in this drama is small, Financially and politically, our lot was similar to that of Johnson's. A native Southern family, arriving in Texas during the Republican period from Tennessee. However, that's where the similarities ended. From what has been passed down through generations, Samuel Johnson and most of his offspring were ignorant and always looking for a fight. One specific story claims that my great-great-grandfather even stopped attending church because of them. Their attempt at avoiding any involvement in the whole mess was well fought, at least until a quiet morning in 1962 when they would be pulled into it, whether they liked it or not. It was a warm June morning. My dad and his family went to church like usual. Everything was normal that day, except for the conspicuous absence of the Campbell family. The section they had been sitting in since the building of the church was glaringly empty. Because of this, mutterings quickly began to spread through the congregation. The Johnsons sat quietly in their own section, doing their best to ignore the rumblings around them. The reverend waited, but was eventually forced to go on with the service. On the drive home, The family passed the Campbell place, expecting to see the bustle of the daily work and those involved in doing it. However, not a soul was seen, and the house sat still, showing no life within. My grandfather dropped the women off at the house, and he and my dad returned to the Campbell place to take a closer look around. As they approached the home, the uncomfortable silence was broken by the slamming of a screen door. It had been left open and free to swing in the wind. The noise brought out the livestock, and their incessant mooing showed that they had yet to be fed or milked. If this was truly the case, something had to be very wrong inside. My dad ran into the barn and fed them quickly and rejoined his dad at the door. They were able to enter with no problems. Unlocked doors were still a common practice in those parts, but that would soon change. There were no signs of life in the back part of the house. My grandfather called out but received no answer. If anyone was still alive inside, the creaking of the stairs as they climbed them certainly would have caused them to stir. But no one appeared. The two men separated as they reached the landing, each heading for different closed doors. Just by chance, 
My father was the first to discover the fate of the Campbell clan. Two small bodies laid still. In their little blood-soaked beds, John Jr. and William had been shot repeatedly as they slept. Upon taking in the sight, my dad rushed from the room, battling the urge to throw up. He was still, just barely out of childhood himself, and yet to have witnessed something so horrible. His father was just about to enter the bedroom of the Campbell parents when his son came rushing from the room. Although no words were exchanged between the two, my grandfather knew what horrors the room behind him likely held. The scene in the parents' room was much like that of the children. Both elder Campbells laid motionless and bloody in their large Victorian bed. They had been shot with a shotgun to the head, but John Sr., the patriarch, had been shot several more times. So much so, it was impossible to definitively identify him. Despite this, there was no doubt the heinously slaughtered man was indeed John Campbell, and the man behind the shotgun was his lifelong adversary, Matthew Johnson. The ill-tempered Matthew's absence from the morning services was almost as noticeable as that of the Campbells. The manhunt that followed didn't last long. Matthew's body was found hanging in the loft of the barn, and the death was ruled a suicide. The motive behind the terrible act, more than likely, was the latest in their long string of court battles. This time, the Campbells found it necessary to bring Matthew into another expensive and drawn-out case over the water rights along the long-disputed property line the two families shared. After more than three years of fighting, the Johnsons would ultimately come up on the short end of this stick. What would have been just another link in the chain that had connected the two farm dynasties for over 100 years proved to be the end of the Johnson family's hold on their land. It was later discovered that they had been barely managing to keep their heads above water, from harvest to harvest, and John Campbell's suit and their eventual loss was the final blow. Once Matthew no longer had anything left to lose, the century-old bitterness between the neighboring families broke free and gave him the justification many of those before him lacked. His wife told the sheriff all she claimed she knew. Her husband had stepped out just after sundown, only to return two hours later with a substantial bit of blood on his shirt. She stood by their bedroom window and watched as he burned those same clothes. After he finished this, he came to bed and went to sleep like normal. However, the next morning when she awoke, Matthew was not in the bed next to her. She searched the farm, but he was nowhere to be found. The family went to church like normal because she feared their absence would cause people to talk. She swore she had no idea what her husband was going to do when he left that evening, or what he had done when he returned. It was clear that he had done something dark, but his target wasn't known. The remaining members of the Johnson family had an auction for their few valuables and vacated the property soon after. Dad said that they were rumored to be living in Wichita Falls, and Matthew's wife had remarried, but once he went off to the war, he never heard anything else about them. The ownership of their former homestead and adjoining land was purchased by a big land company out of Fort Worth, 
who broke the land up into smaller parcels and sold it off to new buyers. As for the Campbell land, the place would sit empty for many years. The slaughter that took place inside, tainting the value of an otherwise beautiful home. That land, too, would invariably be broken up and become a massive housing subdivision when the area and all the remaining family farms were consumed by the nearby city.